Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 9 this morning. We're picking up where we left off last week. We're in Genesis chapter 9, and you will find that on page 6, if you're using the church Bible, actually page 7. And we are looking at Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, down to the end of chapter 10. This section really goes together. Genesis 9, 18, down to chapter 10, verse 32. And as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and reading along with me this morning. And before we do, let's again go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us focus on his word this morning. Father, we do pray that you would remove from us all distracting thoughts, all wandering thoughts. We pray that your spirit would rule and reign as your word is preached. We pray, our God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us wisdom and understanding. We pray that what we hear this morning would change us, that we would see more of your wisdom, and we would know more of your power. And above all those things, that we would know that all that wisdom and power is in Christ and him crucified. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see you and to trust you and to come to you and to follow you and to obey you. We pray that you would transform us by the preaching of your word, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 9, we're beginning in verse 18, and there we read, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the earth, whole earth, were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told the two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamah. The sons of Javan, Elisha. Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havalia, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Then the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, 
Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Parthrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clan of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshed, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshed fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, and the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havalia, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory of which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephir to the hill country in the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this week I read, very providentially, read a a blog post that was titled, Where's Drunk Naked Noah on the Sunday School Felt Board? I thought that was a very creative, clever title. Where is Drunk Naked Noah on on the Sunday School Felt Board? And the author goes on to say that he has walked through numerous, numerous churches and Sunday school rooms and, and looked on the walls and see and looked for the complete story of Noah. And, and to his dismay, drunk naked Noah is never there. And he said it'd be so easy, just have a little tent and you'd have a, a little naked man passed out by the tent, the ark off a little bit in the distance and the kids could come and they could put naked Noah into the tent to complete the story. Now, we laugh and... and some of us didn't just laugh when I, when I said that. Um, but, but the reality is that this is integral to our understanding what God is doing with Noah and the covenant. We saw last week that Noah is really a second Adam, isn't he? He's the, the head of a new humanity. He is a typological second Adam. And just as God brought creation out of the waters, separating the waters, then he destroys creation with the waters. It is creation disintegrating. It is disintegration. God is destroying the men who worship the creature and creation, and yet he saves Noah, and he saves Jesus, the human nature of Jesus in Noah, and he saves his promise, and, and he is doing something new. He is bringing about a new creation. It is a typical new world. Here, now that the waters have abated and, and, and God has separated, in a sense, the waters and dry land has appeared and fruitfulness and life and, a, again, a habitable world for Noah and his descendants to dwell in, to fill the earth and to be fruitful and to multiply the same language given to Adam, here is the second Adam. 
What's interesting is in order to understand what God is teaching us about this being a foreshadowing of what the last Adam, Jesus, would do and the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth and that this story has everything to do with redemption and redemptive history, in order to get that, we have to understand the sin, the fall, and the nakedness of Noah. If we want a Bible that is cleaner and nicer than the Bible God has given us, then it will be no help to us. It will be no help to us. And so we're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to consider the fall of Noah. And then secondly, we're going to consider the covenant blessings and curses pronounced by Noah. We'll notice that it's interesting. The last thing that Noah, we're told about Noah, is he steps off the ark He sacrifices. He acknowledges his sinfulness. He sacrifices to God. He is essentially saying, I need the Redeemer. I'm waiting for the Redeemer to come. I need a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sins. Here is the man of faith. He has weathered the storm. He has obeyed the Lord by faith. He has spent the majority of his life and energy and resources building an ark for an unforeseen judgment that God has said is coming on the whole face of the earth. Here is the man who is called the preacher of righteousness. Here is the man by God's grace who was the only man on earth who had the righteousness of Jesus imputed to him at that point in time in history. And here is Noah stepping off the ark and sacrificing. And now here is Noah becoming a vine dresser, and, and, and planting a vineyard for himself and getting drunk and passing out. Now, before I talk about Noah's fall, I need to tell you how this is related to him being the second Adam. Just as Adam fell in the garden from the estate in which God created him by taking of the fruit of the tree of which God commanded him not to, and then realizing the nakedness and the shame of his sin. Here is Noah, and Noah falls because Noah is not the Redeemer. Why why does God record for us the detail of Noah getting drunk? And I think it's more than a one-time occasion in Noah's life. I think there is an ongoing snare where Noah is ensnared for a period in drunkenness. And why tell us about that and the nakedness? Why tell us that? Because God wants everyone to know this is not the Redeemer and that the godliest saints are beset by great weaknesses. John Calvin has a great statement. He says, The most saintly and the most perfect will be subject to stumbling badly and committing horrible faults unless God restrains them. If that kind of patriarch one who was praised and valued by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, was caught unawares, what can we expect? That is where we have to bear in mind when judging others who have been overcome by weakness. Let us understand that when God permitted such noteworthy men, accomplished in every respect, to fail at some point, we are admonished to stay on guard and remain vigilant against Satan's clever tricks and all the pitfalls he sets before us. Calvin will go on and he'll say those who preach the word are not without weaknesses and vices. Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He will prophesy by the Holy Spirit right after we're told about his drunkenness and his passing out naked. He is a preacher of righteousness. Calvin says those who preach the word are not without weaknesses and vices. Although they must show the way to all the rest, although they must not only have the word in their mouths but affirm what it contains for their lives, They are nonetheless not angels in whom there are no perceptible weaknesses. They are the first to have to sense that they are evil and examine themselves more carefully. 
by far than those who are private individuals. And so as Calvin has noted, these, this has a purpose. It has a purpose for Noah. It's teaching Noah more about his sinfulness and, and humbling Noah. It's teaching us to be on guard that if this could happen to a man of that age after so long a time of walking faithfully with the Lord, it can happen to us. Now, I want to say this this morning. There is no warning here about drinking. There is zero warning about drinking wine in this text. There is a huge warning against drunkenness. Um, Calvin, in his sermon, actually I would commend it to you if you want a copy, I'm happy to make it for you, talks about the blessing and the snare of wine. And he says the Bible shows those two sides, doesn't it? It says that the fruit of the vine is one of the chief good things that God gives to men. It makes the heart of man glad. The Bible says that wine makes the heart merry in a good way. Um, In fact... There are, there are theologians who think that in part, remember Noah's name was Noah because God said he, would, uh, he had his father name him Noah. This one will give us rest from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And Noah begins to work that ground. And one of the things that God gives us temporarily in this life to help ease the burden of the curse is wine. It is, it's a blessing from God. We need to be clear about that. It is also an enormous snare. And notice that that's highlighted, that Noah, it's not just this sort of haphazard drunkenness. It's not, oops, I drank a little too much, but he is giving himself over to it. The language in the Hebrew seems to intimate that he knew exactly what he was doing, that he was running to drunkenness. Now, There have been some who have said, well, Noah was working the ground and didn't know that when grapes fermented that this happened, and so it just kind of snuck up on him. Jesus says that the men and women on the earth that he destroyed with the flood were eating and drinking. He's using that in the context. That is eating and drinking alcoholic beverage. They were eating and drinking. They knew what wine was. They probably knew what beer was. They knew what fermented drink was. So this is an intentional fall, just like Adam just like Adam intentionally reached his hand out and took an eight. You know, the parallels are amazing. Adam's in a garden. Noah's in a vineyard. Adam reaches out and takes the fruit of the tree. Noah takes the fruit of the vine. Adam's nakedness is covered by God. Noah's nakedness is covered by his oldest sons. In both accounts, things move from the sin of the father to the resulting blessing and curses on the children. Genesis 3. Isn't that remarkable? It's complete recapitulation from the opening chapters of the Bible. It is, it is typical creation, fall, and redemption all over again. God is giving this to Israel. He's helping them understand his purposes. He's going to help them understand better their situation and their place and their need for redemption. Uh, There is a theology of nakedness here. We've already talked about this in this series. There is a theology of the shame of nakedness, that after the fall, that our physical nakedness mirrors our spiritual nakedness, our being stripped of righteousness, and there is a shame to our spiritual nakedness. And all of this is being taught as we look at Noah's fall. Um, uh, one writer said that Noah gave himself to drunken debauchery and passed out there naked right by the ark. Striking imagery if you think about that. Here's the ark that he just spent his life building. 
and now here's drunken naked, now, naked Noah. Now, what do we take from this? I think one thing we take away from this, personally, is our own failures and weaknesses. You know, a godly person is going to recognize their sinfulness. They're going to recognize what sinful proclivities they have. They're going to recognize what might ensnare them. They're not going to live in fear or walking on eggshells, not talking to anybody, but they're going to know their hearts and their minds, and they're going to realize their weaknesses, and they're going to guard against those weaknesses, and they're going to be vigilant in that. That's one of the big reasons God teaches us about drunk, naked Noah. Noah was far godlier than us, and so if Noah needed that warning, we need that warning. Um, Also interesting to note that Noah... Nowhere in the text does it say he realized his sin and repented. Very interesting. He awakes after his son Ham, who we'll talk about in a second, does what he does. He awakes from his drunkenness and he curses Ham. the, The text says when he realized what his son had done, not when he realized what he had done. There's another warning there. There's another layer that here Noah had probably been in the habit of drinking too much and it took his son and the great act that brought the covenant curse for him to snap out of it, and yet it wasn't even him recognizing his own sin. That is a great warning for us. You know, the greater majority of people in the church, your pastor included, go through our lives not focusing on our own faults enough. The greater part of the church goes through our lives with our failings, We don't want the consequences, we don't like the consequences, but we don't repent because we're not first and foremost mindful of our relationship with the Lord and our standing before him and what he requires of us. And others see the faults and others observe them. Isn't that interesting that it's the sons of Noah that observe the fault of their father? It's the sons that see. Now, I'll say this too. I think this is a warning for us as parents that Our children are watching. What we do has implications and consequences. And our children see us, and we're sinners, and we're great sinners, and we have great weaknesses. But we need to take to heart the fact that our children see our sinful actions. They hear our sinful words. They observe that, and it has consequences and implications. Um, Noah's fall has repercussions on his children. It has repercussions on Ham, his son Ham, the father of Canaan. Um, it draws out the worst in Ham. Now, Ham is not a believer. He's, an, he's unregenerate. We're going to see that you know, the ark was sort of a type of the church, and, and there were believers and unbelievers that were in there. It's always believers and unbelievers in the visible church. And, uh, and the sins of the righteous often elicit and, and tempt to sin more the unregenerate in the church and in the home. And Noah's sin elicits his son's great act of wickedness. Now, what is the sin of Ham? There have been legions of books written on this. And, and I'll tell you this morning where I stand on this, but I want to tell you the two possibilities. Either it is just a great act of disrespect and unbelief, despising a righteous man whose gospel and whose redeemer he hated, And that when he goes in and he looks, and and there's intimations in the text that his son Canaan probably went and saw his grandfather passed out naked and mocked him and went back and told his dad. And his dad went in and Ham saw him and mocked him and went to the brothers and mocked him. Look at that righteous man. Look, there's where his faith has gotten him. 
And it's either a great act of disrespect on that level or it is a great act of sexual sin. Now you may say, what do you mean sexual sin? Well, the only other place that we have the same language as Genesis 9 is in a couple chapters where we're told that Lot got drunk and his daughters committed incest with him. Um, the language of uncovering nakedness in the law is a euphemism for sexual sin. Um, the language of looked upon his father's nakedness, some have said carry with it either a voyeurism or it carries with it some sort of perverted act, either maternal or paternal incest. Now you may say, wait a minute, I, I don't like that. Well, I'm not sure that's what it teaches, but the rest of Genesis is going to teach all that stuff in different ways and different places. So don't, don't want a cleaner Bible than God gives us. So whatever the case, and I lean toward the first understanding of Ham's sin, whatever the case, whatever he does, this is a great act of unbelief and disrespect and disdain for the one whom God had worked so powerfully in. It is not just a general disrespect of a father, and yet there's a warning for children to respect their parents, to honor their parents. God takes very seriously honor your father and mother. God takes very seriously. In fact, the Lord said, if you want to live a long life, respect your parents. God takes that very seriously. Here's Ham. He disrespects. Notice the language. Ham, the father of Canaan, verse 22, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backwards, covered the nakedness of their fathers. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. Now notice that contrast. The, the disrespectful, disdaining, unbelieving son, look at that righteous man. They, they're fallen and passed out. There's where his God has gotten him. There's where all his trust in a redeemer has gotten him. The disdain that he, he mocks his father to his brothers. And the brothers are so full of respect for their godly father that they hold the sheet up, which is an act of respect and honor and dignity, and walk backwards to cover their father. They have so much respect for him. The contrast could not be any stronger between the, the respectful sons, the believing sons, the sons who are trusting in the Redeemer with their father and the unbelieving, disrespectful son and his disrespectful son. Now, this also teaches us, doesn't it, the doctrine of election. Why do Shem and Japheth, why are they different than Ham? Because God decided to have mercy on Shem and Japheth and not on Ham. It's the same thing we're going to see through the rest of Genesis, isn't it? You have Cain and Abel. God gives grace to Abel, not to Cain. You have it here. You have the brothers and the division. You have the division mentioned in chapter 10 when we come to the descendants of Shem. And we have Abers, two sons, Peleg and Joktan, and we're told there's a division again. You have the division with Esau and Isaac. God has mercy on Isaac and not on Esau, Jacob and Esau, I'm sorry, Isaac, not Ishmael. You have these divisions where God is redeeming. And what God is doing is God is preserving for himself a people. God is in the work of preserving and separating a people for himself. We see that in the responses of the sons to their father. <clears throat> Secondly, we see the covenant blessings and curses pronounced on them. Now, very interesting, and I, I take heart in this, that no sooner does Noah fall and sin that God restores him and uses him. Because the blessings and the curses that he now pronounces are the blessings and curses of the Holy Spirit 
speaking through him. He is prophesying by the Spirit. God is again using Noah. It's actually very hope-building and encouraging that even when you sin, if you return to the Lord, the Lord uses broken, sinful people. No matter, you know, King David. David commits adultery and premeditates murder of one of his mighty men. And then he writes like 20 psalms after he's restored that are in the Bible. God uses his people again, and God is working in Noah. And Noah pronounces these curses. Notice that verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jabeth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, in order to understand these curses, we have to understand that this is a recapitulation of Genesis 3 again. There are the curses on the serpent that God is going to destroy him. He's going to make him eat dust. He's going to crush his head. And there are the blessings that the seed of the woman is going to um, bring forth a redeemer, that the woman would bring forth a son and he would be the seed of the woman, the redeemer, who would crush the head of the serpent. It's the gospel, Genesis 3.15. In that list of covenant blessings and curses after Adam sins, God comes in, God pronounces those blessings, and in those curses, we have that again with Noah. And we have, and this is the big important thing to get because you won't get chapter 10 if you don't get this. You will miss the point of the entire purpose of those names that I painfully read through this morning. And the purpose is God promised that there would be two seeds, that there would be the continuing seed of the serpent, which is Satan and the entire unbelieving world, whether in the church or without, that hate God and hate the Lord Jesus, and there would be the seed of the woman who would be Christ and everyone in him by faith, and that those two seeds would run through human history. Now, the question is, with, with the flood, did God destroy those two seeds? That's the question. It seems that perhaps God has limited it and narrowed it down to just the seed of the woman because God saved Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives in the ark. And it seems that the seed has been preserved. And then we see that so has the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent has been preserved in the ark in, in Ham and his son Canaan. And then the striking thing, the really striking thing, is that God is writing this to Israel and every, everything mentioned in chapter 10 pertains to the entire dealings of Israel in their history until Christ comes. Every one of Israel's opponents is in the table of nations in Genesis 10. Very interesting when you start to read through that the first one mentioned is Canaan. Canaan, the son of Ham, from whom the Canaanites come, who will possess the land until God sends Israel in to dispossess them. The Amalekites, the Amorites, all of the enemies of Israel are bound up in these three sons. Very interesting, Ham embodies the totality of Satan's kingdom in the, in the multiplying of nations on the earth. You have in, in Ham's genealogy in the first part of chapter 10, you have nations like Egypt, Egypt who oppressed Israel. You have, you have nations like Babylon who oppressed Israel. You have the Philistines who were the most formidable of their opponents during the kingdom era. You have every one of 
Satan's nations, as it were, the seed of the serpent, multiplying out from Ham, and then even from Japheth. And Ham and his descendants multiply on the face of the earth and seem to take dominion, seem to be the oppressive nations, seem to be the nations that are prevailing throughout Israel's history over the church. And you even have the Ninevites, as far away from Israel as as it could be, Nineveh, Assyria. You have all these nations bound up in this history. And you have other nations descending from Shem and from Japheth. Interesting, there's two contrasts really in chapter 10, and that is the descendants and the nations that come from Ham and Shem, who has Aber, from which we get the language Hebrew, from whom Abraham descends, from whom Israel is brought forth, to whom the Redeemer comes. That's what's happening in chapter 10. Why? Why all these names? I don't care about these names. You should. Because God is working out his plan in redemptive history. It's the continuing tale of two seeds. It is the work of redemption of God in the church. You're going to see that all of this is moving to Abraham. All of this is moving down to Abraham. Very interesting, too. This is an interesting kind of side observation. In chapter 10, you have all these nations that come from Ham. I've mentioned Egypt, Babylon, uh, Philistines, Ninevites, all these nations that become the premier opponents of the church of God in the Old Testament. And there's a multiplication of them. It just keeps going. It seems like Ham is busy, and his descendants are busy, and they just keep multiplying. And then you come to Shem's genealogy, and it's very narrow, and it goes down to Aber and then ultimately down to Abraham. I don't know if you see that contrast. The multiplication of all these anti-Christian nations and God narrowing down Shem's line down to Abraham to focus on what he's going to do in building the old covenant church. That's, That's what we have before us. Now, notice the curses and the blessings. It doesn't make sense. Why does God curse Canaan and not Ham? Why does he curse the son of Ham? As I said, I think the best explanation is Canaan probably participated in his father's sin. He joined in his father's mocking of Noah, and so the curse is placed on him. And yet God, I think, is telling Israel that the nations in the land that he's going to tell them to dispossess from them, that they are cursed, that they are a cursed pagan people, that they hate the Lord, that this is God's world and they are being fruitful and multiplying just like Cain's descendants were building the city of man, Ham's descendants are building the city of man. They are trying to take dominion and and dominate the world for self and for self-interest and pleasure and notice that the curse doesn't seem to fit. Noah pronounces this curse, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Well, that doesn't sound like what happens to Canaan's descendants throughout redemptive history. It doesn't sound like they were servant of servant. They were the oppressors. Egypt was the oppressor. Babylon was the oppressor. The Ninevites were oppressive. The Philistines were oppressive. Israel was constantly being subjected to servitude 
under those nations. And yet the pronouncement was Canaan should be servant to servants and to his brother. And notice the blessing now on the brothers. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. You know, ironically, there's not a blessing pronounced on Japheth. It's really only a curse on Ham and Canaan and a blessing pronounced on Shem. Remember, it's just those two seeds. So it's one curse, one blessing, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. God is working his redemptive plan out. And notice the, the highly symbolic language that, first of all, Noah is saying that the Lord is the one behind this blessing. Blessed be the Lord. God is at work. This is about Yahweh building his kingdom. This is about the true and the living God doing his work of redemption. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem is a believer. That's why he is receiving covenant blessing. He is a believer. God calls himself the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. And then notice, may God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, in order for us to understand this, we have to we have to read the rest of the Old Testament. There are two or three places in specific, one in the Psalms, one in Isaiah, where God is indicating his fulfillment of this promise. There's a Psalm where it talks, I believe it's Psalm 87, uh, talks about all those who have been born of God, and it says, and born in Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem above, born of God's spirit, and it, it says, those who are born of his spirit are registered there from Egypt and Babylon. That's in the Psalms, that God is saying he was going to redeem people from other nations, that this is really a prophecy of Jew and Gentile together. Shem would be the one from whom the Israelites would come, but God's plan was never just to save Israel. His plan was always to include the Gentiles, to engraft together. The dwelling in the tents is the idea of going into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, that the nations, the descendants of Japheth are prophesied here. This is remarkable, by the way, because Israel hasn't even been formed yet. There's not even an Abraham yet. And God is saying, my plan is to save Jew and Gentile. My plan is to save the nations and to bring them together into the tent of Shem, into the tabernacle of God to worship God in the spirit. That, that was God's plan from the beginning. This is absolutely remarkable. If you were a Jew, you would get how remarkable this was. Or you probably wouldn't because most never got it. This is absolutely remarkable. No sooner has God populated the earth that he has essentially said, I am going to save Jews and Gentiles for myself. Now, where does that leave Ham? Seems like Ham's out of luck. Seems like all those that descend from Ham are just destined to perish. And here's the most interesting aspect of all of this. One of Ham's descendants builds the city of Nineveh. And the very first people to get the grace of God in the Old Testament outside of Israel was Nineveh through Jonah. It's absolutely remarkable. It is absolutely remarkable that the very first pagan nation 
to get the preaching of the gospel outside of Israel in the Old Testament is not a descendant of Japheth. It is a descendant of Ham and Canaan. It is absolutely remarkable because what it says is that there is a gospel so powerful and there is grace so great and there is a God so intent on saving his people that even where sin abounds and where curse abounds, God will turn curses into blessings. The death of Jesus is so powerful that he he becomes the curse. He takes the curse to himself so that in a very real sense, we can say that those descendants are no longer cursed. I have heard people say, do you think that all these people that descended from them, if they're still descendants today, are cursed? No. I think we're all cursed by nature, and I think Jesus took the curse. I think that Jesus became a curse for us at the cross. Interestingly, when he drank of the cup that God gave him of wrath, when he drank the bitter vinegar, the bitter fruit of the vine, and he hung naked and ashamed and took the shame and the nakedness and he took the curse and he took the wrath and he conquered the evil one and the culmination of everything that God was doing in redemptive history ends at the cross. And as Jesus hangs at the cross, he hangs there so that Gentiles like us would know the mercy of God. Gentiles like us would know the grace of God. It is absolutely remarkable. I want to leave you with this thought this morning. Um, When we step back and we see what God is doing here in this, this part of redemptive history, and we see what God is foreshadowing, and then we read the rest of the Old Testament, we come to a greater appreciation for the fact that our God is a God of absolute wisdom and impeccable precision, but that more than that, he is a God of lavish grace and mercy. Imagine that God in the psalm said he would save people from Egypt and Babylon, the very people who would oppress his church. You know, I was thinking about this this week. I think this, is, this may highlight God's grace more than anything else in the scriptures. The very first people that get the gospel after Jesus is crucified, risen, and ascends, are the very people that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching at Pentecost. He says, you took him by lawless hands. You murdered the holy and the just one, even though it was God's purpose. And the people are cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and believe the gospel. The promises are to you. And 3,000 souls were added to the church. That's abs- What kind of God do we have whose grace is so great that the very people that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, are the very people he goes to first with the good news of mercy and pardon if they will trust him. That is amazing grace. That's what the Table of Nations is teaching us, that God is populating the earth in order to save a people for himself. Now, the question that you have to leave here with this morning is, if, if I, I examine my heart, where am I? Am I more like Ham in the way that I respond to um, people? If I see a righteous person fall, am I, am I glad that they fell in my heart? Is there, a, is there a despising of God's work in his people in my heart? Or is there a respect in my heart for others? We have to ask the question, are we watching ourselves against falling? Are we watching ourselves against our own sinful weaknesses and proclivities to sin? Are we acknowledging that if Noah fell severely, we can fall severely? We have to ask the question, are we going back to the Lord 
Are we going back to him? Are we saying, Lord, I, I don't deserve any of your blessing, and yet you've given me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? That's, that's the response we should elicit. This should also stir us up to worship God for saving a people like us and bringing us in, extending the borders of his church and, and bringing us in to dwell in his presence. I mean, I don't know that any of us, myself, starting with myself, understand how amazing it is that we can sit here and listen to this. I mean that. I don't think any of us understand how amazing it is that you can hear these things and read these things, that you are part of the church, that you can worship the living and true God because of his lavish grace. It is absolutely astonishing. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never come to Jesus, that grace is extended today. It's held out. This is, this is like every other part of scripture. It is, it is laying Christ out and, and the Christ that said, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you the rest that you're really looking for. I'll give you rest that, that wine, you know, I just read a quote, very interesting. Wine is like liquid Sabbath. It's true. It's like liquid Sabbath. It's liquid rest, but it doesn't give the rest that we need in our souls. It doesn't give the rest that we need. Christ will give the rest that we need. Come to him. Look to him in faith. Call on him. Go to him for that rest. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Our Father, we need eyes to see these things. We need ears to hear these things. We need you to work in us by your grace that we would marvel at your wisdom and marvel at your plan of redemption and marvel at the way that you use Noah even after he sinned and marvel at the way that you have redeemed us and you have brought us in and grafted us in to that vine to Israel and made us the true Israel in Christ. And Lord Jesus, we marvel at your greatness and the perfections of your majesty and we marvel this morning at the greatness of your grace to us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace that you have shown to us in Christ. Thank you for redeeming us. We pray that you would continue your work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.